HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant-prepared meal kits to your door. Learn more at misenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N box dot co. There are plenty of people that like alcohol, but they don't necessarily want to taste it aggressively, like an old fashioned or a Manhattan that's all booze. And so the citrus really lightens it up and kind of takes away some of the harshness that alcohol can really bring. And so when you add citrus to it, it just allows you to do so many things. You can add an egg white to make it a sour. You can add just, I mean, take your vodka soda and do a little squeeze of lime and you've instantly got a totally different drink. And so it can really transform a cocktail so easily. And so citrus is used in pretty much every cocktail bar around the world. That was Brooke Toscano from New York's bar, Pouring Ribbons, showing us that when you have lemons, you can do way more than make lemonade. Citrus fruits are a major player in bars around the world. From margaritas to mojitos, the sour touch can transform a rough drink into a delicious cocktail. From the many ways we can use acidity in drinks, we move to the world of vinegars that complement our food. Then we'll learn some tricks on reducing acidity in coffee. And we finished last week's history on a drink straight out of the British Navy, grog. I'm Hannah Forden, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. The acidity in citrus fruits can make them less appealing to take a big bite of. We spritz them over salad, use their zest in sauce, or add their juice to a drink. And because we may not use the entire fruit, we end up with a lot of citrus waste. Brianna Brady spoke to one bar manager at Pouring Ribbons in New York's East Village about how they're trying to use their citrus as sustainably as possible. Brooke Toscano has been on a mission for a while. She wants to make the most of the citrus fruits coming into her bar. Because there is a lot of citrus to deal with. When I first started at Pouring Ribbons, 
we were going through, I mean, two, three cases of limes, two, three cases of lemons, two cases of oranges a week. And we are one single cocktail bar in one tiny aspect of New York City. That's a lot of rinds, a lot of squeezed out lemons, a lot of whole peeled oranges. Brooke says that there are about 150 limes in a case. With three cases, that's 450 limes a week. It's hard to imagine what that even looks like. And all that citrus adds up in more ways than one. And so the idea of like saving the planet for sure, I love it. I'm all about it. But if you're saving the planet and you're spending 12 hours to prep one syrup, that's not sustainable for a business model because you've got to factor in labor costs, transportation for them to get there, the tools you needed to make that happen. And so for us, sustainability really needed to be lowering our carbon footprint, but also make sense financially. And so we started looking at our citrus as the first thing to cut back on because the bills were crazy. Her first step was to start keeping a spreadsheet. She tracked how many fruits they were juicing and then how much juice they were throwing away at the end of the night. Simple. Then, well, then she got creative. The lemon and lime peels were one of the easier problems to solve. And so there's so much flavor that's left in those peels. All of those really beautiful essential oils are just left in that citrus and we're just tossing it away. Pouring ribbons started making citrus stock. They still do. They throw used peels, the husks of juiced lemons and limes, into boiling water. Add some citric acid, a little bit of sugar, and voila. And then you've extended a shelf life for a citrus stock versus a juice from 24 hours to about a week, which is crazy. And it's, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a direct replacement. I wouldn't do it in a classic daiquiri or something like that. But when you're making kind of off the wall, weird cocktails, and you're already using weird ingredients, you just have to understand that some of those classic recipes are going to need to be altered a little bit. Weird like the Nightmare Before Christmas cocktail that Brooke once made while trying to use up oranges that had been peeled for garnishes and other drinks. She ended up creating what she calls mimosa syrup out of chopped up oranges and flat champagne. But she didn't stop with just making the syrup. And so I would strain all the pulp out once it had reduced by about half and then strain that pulp out. And then we're fortunate to have a dehydrator and we would mash the pulp down in kind of a flat sheet. And then that became the garnish for the cocktail that we were using the mimosa syrup for. So then it became this really cool, like orange mimosa taffy kind of. So there was literally zero waste was coming out of those orange peels. Not a single thing was being thrown away, which was really cool. However, in pursuit of using the entire fruit, not every cocktail works out perfectly. But I've definitely made things that were so labor intensive that were not worth it. Or I was in this weird orange sort of dilemma where I either had too many and I was wandering around the East Village, no joke, giving them to other bars, like peeled oranges, like walking around with trash bags of oranges. Or I was using too many oranges and I didn't have enough peeled oranges. And then I was going to other bars and picking up oranges, which is not a sustainable option either. There's a lot of time wandering around the city. But for Brooke, it's still worth experimenting. She says it better than I could. When someone is trying to, especially in a bar or restaurant, trying to lower their waist, it can feel so daunting because when you start to really look at your trash, 
what you're throwing away. You start looking at packaging. You start looking at, oh my gosh, these limes are coming from Mexico and the truck that it took and all of the process. And you start looking at all of it and you can't unsee it. It can kind of just feel so overwhelming. But any tiny little improvement you can make to your waste, even if it's just creating a par sheet, maybe not throwing away a couple oranges tomorrow is a massive improvement. And it's all of those tiny little steps that make this big difference when we all start doing them collectively. Well, pouring ribbons isn't completely zero waste. Brooke says that getting creative with how they use fruit has allowed them to cut their citrus purchases by about 60%. So less fruit, less waste. And the cocktails, those are still delicious. On a hot summer day, it's hard not to think about a refreshing citrus beverage. But that's only one source of acidity in food. Next, we turn to vinegar. And that means it's probably time to turn to our friend, Michael Harlan Turkel. Michael is the host of HRN's The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs. He's also a major vinegar lover. Michael wrote the book Acid Trip about traveling the world to explore unique vinegars. Akiko Katayama, host of Japan Eats, spoke with him about what he discovered traveling in Japan, from standard rice vinegar to some more unique varieties. So let's talk about the Japanese vinegar. So uh, what types of vinegars are popular in Japan? Rice vinegar. First and foremost, komizu or regular rice vinegar, if you want to call it that, is very clean. Mm -hmm. um, most of it's a little bit lighter than white wine vinegars. Most komizu is pretty standard. Like it has the the sensation and the mouthfeel more than it does the flavor. Mm. So it has the acidity, but it doesn't really have much character. After oh, it's more that. like a background. Yes. Right. And that's how most komizu or rice vinegar is used in Japan. So what is kurotsu? Well, kurotsu is something. In it of itself, like it, it, it's a completely different category, but it's this really kind of deep and dank and funky. It's kind of like the natural wine of vinegars because it, it's made of three ingredients and three ingredients only. Vinegar is a very, very slow process and it's very boring to show people how to make it <laughs> unless they have six months to sit with me. But the one wonderful thing about the kurotsu or this black vinegar is that you can hear it. Like, there's a point where it's kind of bubbling away, and they actually use uh, a lot more senses than just taste and smell. Mm. They lean over, and they kind of listen for that rice crispy snap, crackle, and pop. So, kurosu sounds like just like a thicker flavor, and yes. how do you use it? A lot of it's drank. It's a potable. You know, it's made as uh, sports drinks. It's made as, like, nerve tonic, and it's all promoting health and restorative qualities. But then you don't find it much in food. It's a very distinct flavor. It's... Mm almost primordial because it's got that funk and it's got so mm. much going on that a lot of softer rice vinegars are used as a backbone, mm. um, used to supplement other flavors or used to kind of create structure, you know, right. on whatever sauce or marinade, where kurozu can be its own thing. One of the most unique vinegars Michael found was akazu, or red vinegar. It's actually made from all the sake leaves, and it's this really, really dark colored mm. and extremely like tasty and potent. It's, it tastes like rice vinegar and soy sauce, like the mixture uh. of it, because it has so much umami glutamic acid to it too. Mm. Um, 
but this was the primary vinegar of Japan prior to like the 1860s. I had never tasted anything like it until I tasted it for the first wow. time. That was the most fascinating thing. I went there trying to find these shokunin, you know, these master craftsmen of, of, of vinegar. And it wasn't until I was getting into some of these more eccentric or esoteric ones mm. that I really saw different styles of vinegar. Everything mm. kind of was within these kind of latitudes. Michael also traveled throughout North America, France, Italy, and Austria. At one point, he'd collected nearly 500 bottles of vinegar from around the world. Like Akazu and Kurosu, he says each one is its own distinct condiment. You can hear more from Japan Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant-prepared meal kits to your door and enabling anyone to be the hero of their kitchen. You can book fun and lively virtual cooking sessions featuring restaurant chefs who guide the group through the preparation of their home-delivered meal kit. They're always looking for new restaurant partners. If you're a restaurant, a food truck operator, or a catering food brand looking for an additional line of revenue, Misenbox can help get you into the meal kit space in a matter of days. If you are an eater, recommend your favorite restaurant and Misenbox will take care of the rest. Learn more at misenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N box.co. Welcome back to Meat and 3. As we've learned, we consume acidic ingredients in many forms, but some are less obvious than others, like coffee. As a result of this component in the much-beloved morning beverage, coffee can upset sensitive digestive systems. Pablo Alvarez takes us on a coffee-testing experience to find out the best ways to reduce acidity in coffee. It's early in the morning, you're half asleep, but you have a packed day ahead of you. If you're like me, one of the few things that can take you out of that semi-zombie state is a cup of coffee. And let me tell you, we are not alone. The latest study released by the National Coffee Association found that 64% of Americans are coffee drinkers. And there is a good reason for that. Drinking coffee can boost your mood, metabolism, and mental and physical performance. On the other hand, some people might get acid reflux, even by having coffee in moderation. According to the National Institute of Health, up to 40% of Americans experience acid reflux one or more times per week. So what do coffee addicts have left to do when acid reflux reared its ugly head? I decided to ask someone in this position. So I'm your guinea pig? That is Melissa, my wife. She's from Colombia, loves coffee, and suffers from bad acid reflux. So yes, she is my guinea pig. Acid reflux feels like it's a burning sensation, like you had a, something super spicy and it didn't fully break down in your stomach. After watching her struggle to balance caffeine and her health, I researched some solutions, so I decided to do a little experiment at home. 
we usually get a coffee that is advertised as low acid. How does it compare to regular coffee? Well, I'm Colombian, so I've been drinking coffee since I'm three, literally. So that was always a problem with my acid reflux, but it's not something that I was willing to give up. But then when I got low acid coffee, it made a big difference. Um, I could drink more than one cup if necessary. Next is the cold brew coffee. The only drawback is that it takes at least 12 hours to brew. It has a punch. I like it. It's a good, strong coffee. The result will be a more concentrated form of coffee. Coffee that is prepared through cold brewing is 67 less acidic than coffee prepared through hot brewing. Now we're down to the last trick, the weird one. I found that adding eggshells to the mix while brewing the coffee can lower its acidity. This tradition is linked with the so-called cowboy or campfire coffee. The reason it works is because the eggshells are composed mostly of calcium carbonate, a fairly alkaline material that has the ability to absorb some of the acid in the coffee. This is coffee number three. Ew, this is weird. What did you put in it, Pablo? Well, the good thing about it is that apparently these hacks at home, they work. Well, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel no acid reflux. They felt pretty good. I hope that with this little at-home experiment, I was able to show you some tricks so we can all continue enjoying that so-needed cup of coffee. Now, let's pick up where we left off last week with Grog. We heard how the addition of citrus to watered-down rum had a huge impact on the British Navy in the 1700s. But what is its broader role in British culture? Zoe Denkla is back to explore the rest of the story. On last week's episode of Meet and Three, I talked all about the history of grog. But in case you missed it, here's the rundown. Grog was a drink created by a British naval officer stationed in Barbados in 1741. It consists of rum, water, sugar, and lime. That lime and grog provided sailors with enough vitamin C to ward off scurvy, which, prior to, caused so many crew members to fall sick. Grog had a huge impact on the British Navy in the 1800s, so I was curious how many people actually knew about it today, or if it was even still served. I did some digging and reached out to this little bar in England called the Grog. Here's the bar's owner. My name's James. I'm 30 years old. I've recently just bought a little rum bar in Southport in the UK. So it's been it's been uh, it's been quite good fun actually because I knew the old owner very well, and he was slowly converting me into a rum lover. I think that's probably the best way to put it. <laughs> Since Grog was served in the Navy till 1970, I kind of had this fantasy it would hold some sort of English national drink status, but James said not so much. I don't think they know the specifics of it. I think they see it as an alcohol not necessarily as a product or, or as a cocktail. Grog still seemed to be part of British culture, but more so as slang, referring generally to alcohol. But what about the pride and preservation of this hugely important national drink? Maybe I just consumed one too many pirate-themed Grog YouTube videos. I was worried for a sec the bar didn't even serve it, especially since the tiny place had no menu online. 
We do, we do. We ser- we serve two variations of grog. There is an official naval recipe, but I was curious about the modern execution. So first off, James gave me his traditional preparation of grog. It's an overproof rum, which is any any rum that's over um, 60% ABV. And then you have a 50 mil shot of that. Uh, and then you equal parts that down with cool water and a slice of lime. If you are looking for something a little more exciting, or maybe you're not the biggest fan of watered-down rum, James had his own spruced-up take on the traditional drink. The Lee Grog cocktail, that's Pink Pigeon Rum, which is, which is quite sweet and very Moorish, in the bottom of a coffee cup glass, and then you crumble a sugar cube into the bottom of that, pour a load of honey on top of it, a squeeze of lemon, and then top it up with hot water. And then that's a fantastic stiffener on a cold night. All right, all right. So good to know it's still served. Grog's legacy in England wasn't quite what I was expecting. But of course, this combo of rum, water, sugar, and acid is the basis for so many of our rum-based cocktails. You've got daiquiris, mojitos, mai tais, et cetera, et cetera. Grog shows us how acid can be both functional and add a flourish to pretty much any drink. I know I couldn't imagine a mojito without lime. So thank you, Grog. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Meet and 3 will be taking a break before launching into our 11th season in a few weeks. So now is a great time to explore HRN's archive and find your next favorite food podcast. Special thanks this week to Zoe Denkla, Brianna Brady, Hannah Fulmer, and Pablo Alvarez. Meet and 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Main 3 is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Main 3 is powered by Simplecast. Main 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>